Brought to you by Chemistry. Hello and welcome back to Brought to You by Chemistry with me, Dr. Alex Lathbridge. In the last few episodes, we've been learning about the different aspects and impacts of air quality, from what this means to our health, how indoor air quality can differ, as well as the government policies that we may need to improve public health. Today, we're going to be adding to that list of knowledge by finding out what wildfires mean for air quality. I'm Emily Fisher. I'm a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. And I'm also a member of Science Moms, a a group of mothers who are also scientists working to help people understand the connections between climate change and other societal issues. Okay, so today we are we're going to be talking a little bit about wildfires. Right. So for our listeners who might not know, and maybe me too, what are wildfires? Wildfires are unplanned fires that can grow to very small or very large sizes, um, but they're different from other types of fire. Uh, They are um, different from prescribed fires, which we use as management tools and light intentionally, and different from agricultural fires, for example, which um, serve a purpose. So wildfires are are, um, exactly as the name says, they're, they're wild, they're unintentional. I'm guessing wildfires are are pretty bad for air quality. They have some sort of effect on air quality, right? Fires have a major effect on air on air quality. Not not necessarily some sort of of, of effect on air quality. I, I thought I thought I'd bridge it in a nice way. I didn't want to be seen too much of a leading question, you know. So hypothetically speaking, like wildfires, air quality, there's something going on there, right? Yeah, and so wildfires uh, they produce plumes that can be. Uh, very concentrated. And those wildfire smoke plumes contain a very complex mixture of air pollutants. There's things in them that are, uh, there are particles and there are gases. And so the, the particles are very small. They're deep enough to get, they're small enough, sorry, to get deep into your lungs. And they're a slightly different composition than what you see in urban areas. Um, the, par- the fine particles from wildfires tend to be organic carbon. And in addition to the particles, which you see, uh, smoke contains all sorts of gases and those um, those can have their own health effects. So, so smoke contains, for example, carbon monoxide from the, all the incomplete combustion that's happening and a variety of different volatile organic compounds, many of them which are air toxins. So things like benzene, acrylin, formaldehyde, all of, all of those things are in this complex mixture of smoke. So when smoke comes to town, it's, it's bringing with it a very complex mixture of air pollutants. So what's really great there is you're talking about something very sort of very deep, very, very kind of depressing a little bit. But you said lots of sciencey words like volatile organic compounds and, and benzenes and all, all that kind of stuff. So all the chemists listening are going, I know these words. I feel very smart right now. <laughs> so it stands to reason then, you know, you mentioned the word toxin, right? Wildfires, they're affecting air quality. So chances are they're affecting our health, right? And please, let me, you got to keep it somewhat optimistic there. You got come on, tell me, tell me that it's not, and it's all that's 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 not true. Tell me everything's fine. Yeah, so smoke does uh, affect your health if you breathe it in, and it exacerbates 
uh, pre-existing respiratory conditions. So things like asthma, COPD, people who breathe in wildfire smoke tend to have a higher risk of respiratory infections. They also have a higher incidence of cardiac arrest. And so that means that mortality increases when uh, populations are exposed to wildfire smoke. So I've, I've worked on studies that have shown uh, that when smoke um, comes to town, you have increases in um, respiratory hospital admissions, asthma hospitalizations, asthma ED visits, all the way down to inhaler refills, right? So folks with asthma are, are definitely impacted by uh, wildfire smoke. We're just beginning, I think, to understand the full extent of the health impacts of people being exposed to wildfire smoke. Uh, and so we've, we've even uncovered some increases in uh, preterm birth and decreased uh, birth weights associated with women that are exposed to wildfire smoke in their second trimester. So it's, it's a bit tricky to study the health impact of wildfire smoke because you have to know sort of exactly when the smoke came and, uh, you know, when it left a, a, a group of people. But that, that work is ongoing and there's lots of people working on it now and there are definitely health effects associated with breathing wildfire smoke. I mean, it must be sort of difficult for for scientists, you know, researchers to look into because obviously we don't, there, there are fewer and fewer wildfires every year, right? Wildfires are a thing of the past. They don't happen very much anymore, do they? <laughs> You're clever. You're a clever <laughs> interviewer. So <laughs> there are, wildfires are increasing, particularly in North America. So wildfires aren't necessarily increasing everywhere. Um and there are a few reasons why wildfires are increasing in North America. So one is a legacy of land management choices in North America. So we've chosen to suppress fires for a long time. And uh, that means that there's a buildup of fuel uh, in much of North America. And many ecosystems in North America actually benefit from periodic fires. So our choices to uh, manage the land in the way that we have over the last century have left us a bit more vulnerable to, to fires now. Climate change is also priming the land and the atmosphere for earlier, bigger, stronger wildfires. Uh, and so, Climate change is increasing temperatures. I don't think anybody on your on your any of your listeners are surprised by that, right? So climate change is increasing temperatures, but what it's also doing is increasing aridity or making the atmosphere thirstier. And that sort of dries out our fuels. And so in my work in science moms, I, I've we've sort of come up with this analogy or way of uh, visualization for people to think about the effect of climate change on wildfires. So if you had a a dry patch of grass, right? And you tossed a match or you had a spark off your car or something, right? You, if that field is dry, you're very likely to start a fire. Whereas if that field, it just rained and it's greener, you're much less likely to have a quick growing fire in that space. And, and that is what, that's what climate change is doing. It's sort of priming the atmosphere and the fuels for larger wildfires. And so we're seeing climate change now making our fire seasons longer and more severe uh, and, and increasing the return rate or the frequency of our, our large fires. And that's through this temperature and aridity changes primarily. I mean, you, you are talking about North America there, but, mm -hmm. you know, 
air is air. There's there's no passport control for air. Like air does what it wants. It goes where it wants. It crosses borders. So at what point do you think does does this sort of topic of, of wildfires and air quality, you know, when does it become a geopolitical issue? And I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think because I'm going to bring someone in who uh, might be able to add to this conversation. It is, of course, the Royal Society of Chemistry's health policy expert, Dr. Hannah McDonald. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Yes, you are being dobbed right in. Uh, <laughs> because it is, it's is—it's a solid question. Like, at what point would you say that this sort of wildfire, this air quality stuff, you know, all, all of this, when does it become a big geopolitical issue? Because, you know, in, I think it was Canada, there were wildfires and they... You know, you saw the effects of those spread into places like New York, which is not in Canada. I'm correct in thinking that, Emily. That's that's correct, Canada. Okay, cool. So obviously, like this becomes a multi-country issue. This becomes an international issue. This becomes a geopolitical issue. Yeah. So this was one of the questions that um, we've been talking about in the policy team a little bit, um, or were earlier in the year um, when we saw those photos of New York from the um, wildfires in. Uh, Canada and we were thinking as well about the uh, some of our UK and American I think um, legislation on air quality emissions um, is part of an international treaty called the Convention of Long Range and Transboundary Air Pollution and that essentially was brought together after some researchers in Scandinavia um, Sweden I think in particular um, linked acid rain that was damaging their ecosystems to industrial emissions, largely from the UK and other areas, other countries as well. So we were as using that as a kind of example. We were just wondering within the team whether um, the wildfire smoke could also relate in any kind of geopolitical issues across borders, across countries. I mean, climate change is already a geopolitical issue, right? It's it's a connector and a multiplier of risks and fires are just one part of this risk, right? And, and so when you think about fires, um, they're, they are a natural disaster that requires cooperation and the smoke that they produce is also a risk that requires cooperation. And, and you can see that um, we'll need more of it moving forward, but you can see that cooperation that's required, maybe not international, but cooperation that happens when you have these natural disasters here in North America, right? The efforts to protect people span national government down to local, right? They're, they're all levels are cooperating to handle these issues. I've learned that some of your past research has, has looked at transport of air pollutants, not just across America, not just within Europe, you know, UK to Scandinavia, but also Asia as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, for my PhD, I worked at a mountaintop research site in Oregon. And at that time, we were looking at plumes of um, pollutants, various different types of pollutants coming from East Asia to North America. And that was uh, a focus at, at that time in, in the you know, 2008, 2010 time period. And there you can, you know, that transport time across the Pacific in springtime is one to two weeks. And you can observe every couple of days quite large plumes that contain both urban 
air pollutants and also things from the, you know, Taklamakan and Gobi deserts. So, so yes, air pollution moves and it, it, it moves, you know, you can go all the, if the winds are right, you go all the way around the globe in a couple of weeks and certainly crossing the Pacific in about a week and same for the Atlantic on the, on the time scale of days. I actually have a grad student now. It's super fun. I had looked at this issue of, um, intercontinental movement of air pollutants as a, as a graduate student and using in situ measurements. So measurements that we make with an instrument uh, outside. And now we have some new satellite observations and she's able to start looking at a bigger picture and see this across much larger spatial scales. And it's, it's a fun, it'll be a fun couple of months. It's making me remember those uh, days on Mount Bachelor. I love that you call uh, looking at the transportation of of uh, pollutants uh, across the globe fun. Like I, I'm glad we know where each other lie here. I'm, I'm glad we know the level that we're at here. Yeah, it's a puzzle. It's oh. a fun puzzle to solve. It's like a little mystery, right? Like, oh, where did this come from, and how can I figure that out? So, do do places end up with like a fingerprint so you can tell where something is from from the makeup of pollutants that you're seeing? Yeah, you you there will be fingerprints. So for example, dust from different deserts has a different chemical composition and you also will see things of different ages, right? So think the atmosphere for, for your chemistry audience is an is an oxidizing medium and so fresh pollutants often look different than aged pollutants mixtures and and so yes, there's both chemical fingerprints and there's also um, meteorological tools so we can trace air do our best guess of where an air parcel has come from and you know tra- the pathway that it's traveled so so yeah it's a it's just a, it's a fun in that way that puzzles are fun uh, or mysteries are fun or the game clue is fun right that that's the that's the, the process of science is interesting in that way Hannah and I are in the UK like fortunately we don't have that many wildfires but seeing as this podcast is listened to all around the world, like, unfortunately, some people might have to know these sort of things, you know, things like how to protect themselves from wildfire smoke. Like, how how do people do that? How do people protect themselves? So the best thing that you can do is to create a clean airspace for yourself. And that's good to start ahead of a poor air episode if you're you're able to pay attention to that. So, um, for example, my mother is uh, just t- turned 70 tomorrow. Happy birthday, mom. She'll be turning 70 tomorrow. And when the smoke came to the northeast a couple weeks ago, um, I called my mom and said, all right, like, is your air conditioner working? And she said no. And I said, OK, so I want you to close your windows And I would like you, I'm going to ship you an air filter and I want you to run it and it will only keep your bedroom clean. So I was like, try to keep a clean airspace in your house. Um, That's hard, uh, but that's the best way to do it is to have an air filter at home and create that space. Where we run into issues, right, is smoke exacerbates other environmental justice issues where um, people may not have the resources or access to those tools. And so there is a bit of a tension in the U.S. in particular between extreme heat and the presence of wildfire smoke, particularly if you don't have access to an air conditioning unit. And so I have an old house, actually, and I don't have a, a household air conditioning unit. And there 
um, I've sort of built up ways to keep certain rooms a little bit colder and a little bit uh, cleaner, especially for sleeping with my kids. And so, yes, that's what that what you want to do is is stay inside and protect yourself from the the poor air. The other thing to think about is to reduce your exertion. So we're working now with uh, my my team is collaborating with our local city government and the outdoor workers here, and we're trying to help the outdoor workers make decisions based on the air quality. So if the air quality index, if sort of our yardstick of air quality reaches a certain um, a certain severity, then we say take more breaks, take more hydration breaks, listen to your body and have do less strenuous activities. So you can both protect yourself um, and create your clean airspace and you can also try to do uh, less exertion outdoors. And this is particularly important for kids, the elderly, and those with pre-existing respiratory conditions. I think, you know, apart from, you know, everything mentioned, talking about environmental justice, you know, equity, access to these sorts of resources, that's one point. But also, uh, big up you, yeah, having to uh, keep your mum, like, safe. All I have to do is, like, maybe sometimes, you know, fix the internet turn the router off and on again you're out here shipping <laughs> shipping filters and sensors and stuff so well done you it it isn't necessarily just down to individuals like you know at the end of the day we can't necessarily put out wildfires all we can do is adapt you know we can hear the news and we can take some steps you know like you said talking about um physical activity and exertion during times when the environment isn't good the air quality isn't good so on a, like a larger scale um what sort of strategies are there in place to manage wildfires and i mean i hope part of managing is putting them out right so there are a number of things that um are happening and could happen to a greater extent so in north america we probably need massive investment in our forest management we also need to combat climate change right and that is a that is a global challenge. Um, but we can also do more prescribed burning. So um, prescribed fires are fires that are less severe and set at times when it is less likely for them to turn into wildfires. So um, more, more burning, but in seasons where that burning will be less severe. Um, the other thing that we can do as a society is a better forecasting. So providing people more warnings, more time to come up with their, their safety plans, whether that's related to the fire risk itself. And I don't want to minimize that. My family's run from a wildfire, so my heart goes out to everybody who's recently dealt with this um, in sort of unimaginable ways, but both to forecast fires and to forecast where the smoke is going to go and give people and local governments a chance to uh, get ready for that. Um, and then in that way, so more prescribed fires, um, better forecasting and more and improved communication around this issue. So right now it's people are often confused about what to do when smoke comes to town, right? If when smoke is more than one day old, you don't smell it anymore. The compounds that are in smoke that have the smell have decayed. And so. Wow, um, really? Yeah. So just to help people understand that, like you won't, your nose is not a good tool if the smoke is more than one day old. So you need to use visual cues and, and actually check air quality measurements and those communications around that. And then what to do given your sort of ability to control things. So if you are a teacher versus a soccer coach versus a mother versus run a 
home for the elderly. Like, what are the things that you can and should do that would make a difference for your people? So, so those are all things that I think we can do better to both manage the fires and manage the, the impact of the smoke. I think when it comes to sort of these sorts of smell-based dangers or, or dangers that have smells or lack of smells associated to them, the big one I think about is carbon monoxide, you know, so, and, and that really, I know there are sensors, I, you know, my boiler and stuff, I'll have a carbon monoxide sensor. The fact that wildfires can't necessarily be smelt if the smoke is more than a day old is terrifying. Why aren't these systems in place for you know better forecasting, better communication? Well, why aren't why aren't they there, why aren't they there already? Uh, one reason why uh, in the Western U.S. historically, wildfire smoke has always been here. It's been a part of living out out in the Western U.S. And Western North America, but um, the smoke has primarily impacted more rural populations. Those tend to be under-monitored, um, and uh, those communities are under-resourced. Uh, so now that smoke, the wildfires are growing, we've had some more episodes of smoke hitting urban areas. This has been happening on the West Coast and the Western U.S. for a while, right? Cities of San Francisco, Seattle, you've seen pictures, Denver. There is communication improving in the West, and people are um, people are more, uh, this is a more routine experience for people and they're building their systems, but it's less frequent that smoke hits the more populated Eastern cities. So it's not that it doesn't happen. We had some extreme, uh, Quebec wildfires this year, but we've had them in the past in the late nineties too. Um, but it's less frequent that wildfire smoke has hit it, hit the big urban centers of the East, New York, D.C., Boston, these kinds of cities. It just sounds like it wasn't there before because it wasn't affecting people in power. Um, that's probably part of it. When the smoke hit Washington, D.C., I thought, there you go, Mother Nature. Just we need to raise the level of this issue. And there's no better way to do it than send it straight to the Capitol. And I felt that is the, you know... That is a thought in my my brain. And the, the other thought I had was, that's an interesting transport pathway. Where does the smoke normally go <laughs> during when wildfires are in that area, right? And and so I, you know, I also looked at a, a climatology of wind patterns <laughs> during wildfire smoke events in Quebec and realized, oh, it often pushes east, not south. So I did both, right? My science hat, hat was like, that's interesting. Why? And then my, you know, my citizen hat said, oh, there you go. Push it to DC. That'll get some attention. <laughs> And I guess my my question for you now then is, do you think real change is going to be made, you know, in the coming years, let's say five years, 10 years, like from what you explained to me about wildfires, it seems that every day, every, every week, every month counts. So how long does it take to put these sorts of measures in? We've had some, some, yeah, some, some real, real forward motion on, on uh, climate policy in the U.S. and that that's exciting. We need to do more, um, but the next ten years are absolutely critical that we uh, make big changes to our infrastructure and our infrastructure planning uh, for energy of the future. So, so, so anyway, I I do think that I have some hope. Um, and through our science mom's work, that is what I'm doing. Is I'm essentially saying. This is real. This is solvable. And it's a society level issue. So push hard, mothers, on change in to policy. 
at the same time as helping people understand if they're in an economic position, these are the swaps that you can make at a household level. Um, so both pushing people to speak out about the issue and, and work on it in any way possible. So I feel hopeful. Um, I also feel sad and hopeful about fires, right? Fires are an issue that may push the U.S. to work on climate change in a serious way because it is awful. It is awful. The, the wildfires are both scary in the moment, they and the smoke is very damaging to large populations. So for, for people like us, can you recommend like podcasts, books, YouTube channels where, you know, we can learn more about wildfires and climate change? No, I want to learn more about this stuff. I've just learned about prescribed fires, which is like fighting fire with fire. Where can I learn more? Sure. So our science moms resources are are great and they link to additional resources so there's a bunch of videos that we've made there there's one that i did that's three minutes that talks about the links this all the links between climate and fires in particular so that's a good resource has some nice visuals and that's very uh, shareable which is great uh, i also did a, a sort of nova now podcast which i can send you the link to that and that was an interview with me and also with a doctor and I found the interview with the doctor was they went into much more detail of how smoke impacts health. And um, that was a great that was that's that's also a great resource. I actually think so in the U.S., NOAA and NASA are and the EPA are also quite good resources for thinking about wildfire smoke, its connection to climate and uh, where that smoke's going to appear next in the world. And so those are also those are also great, great resources. So I know NASA, they're the moon people, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. Right. Um, what, what is NOAA apart NOAA from NOAA? is our National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and that's our National Weather Service. Some of the best smoke forecasting on an operational sense is being done through NOAA now. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Brought to You by Chemistry with me, Dr. Alex Lathbridge. Join us next time where we're exploring the links between air quality and climate change. Bye for now.